Cause we got the alternative energy right. On nuclear free autonomy And welcome to the Radioactive Show Produced at the studios of 3CR Melbourne And heard nationally on the Community Radio Network The Radioactive Show is produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people in the Kulin Nation We acknowledge that this land has never been ceded I'm Crunch and today's show is about queers fighting the nuclear chain it was inspired by a recently published article on this topic, written by Jesse Boylan, who will be my first interviewee. Jesse's photo essay was commissioned by the fairly mainstream lesbian magazine, Lottle, known as Lesbians on the Loose. Although this is a primarily lesbian-focused publication, the article and today's show will examine the idea of queer resistance to the nuclear industry. Now, in this show, I hold queer with a loose and open meaning that includes people who question the traditional gender binary and form relationships outside the heterosexual norm. Jessie's essay featured photos and quotes from five queer-identifying nuclear-free activists, including Jessie herself. We'll hear from Jessie, followed by Jem Rommeld, who is the Australian director of the International Campaign Against Nuclear Weapons. The song featured throughout today's show is by Eddie Donald and called Feet Ablaze. So thanks for taking time to join us, Jesse Boylan. Um, Can you just begin by quickly introducing yourself and some of the things you get up to? Well, yes, I am Jessie Boylan, as you just said. Um, I am an artist. I work mostly in photo media and photography, video and sound. Um, And I'm also a lecturer in photography. Um, Yeah, that's kind of what I get up to. I'm I'm, I'm interested in, you know, using art to um, explore and make sense of... um, our catastrophic time. So mm. I've done a lot of, obviously, anti-nuclear work, um, exploring the ongoing legacies of nuclear testing programs and mining landscapes. Mm. Um, but more recently, work has been about um, panic and the Anthropocene or the Thulacene. Yeah. Well, thanks. There's a lot of follow-up questions I could ask. But for now, I did want to... Um, ask about your recently written article for the magazine Lottle, mm. um, which was broadly about queer resistance to the nuclear industry and called This Is Not Nowhere. I'm wondering about if you could give us a, um, a brief description of the article and just about your process for compiling that article. Sure. Well, I think um, it actually came about because one of the... I'm in a photography collective called Lumina and we've sort of been asked to be the photo editors for the year of Lotto. Um, mm-hmm. And I propose to present this work, which is um, actually from my master's um, project, which was called This Is Not Nowhere, mm-hmm. um, Photography, the Campsite and the Anti-Nuclear um, Community in Australia. And so I originally, I don't think I had contextualised it around queer life, but Mm. it sort of was maybe one of the things that was missing in my actual Masters, which was how most of the people that I photographed were queer and so commonly are the ones 
that are, in, you know, part of these campaigns or a massive part of these campaigns and, and so active and, and you know, kind of leading and have been for quite a long time, you know, since, since the 1970s and 1980s when there were kind of women's peace camps and um, the Pine Gap protests and Green M Common and all of those kinds of things. So mm. I think I kind of actually got the chance to relook at at this work and go something that was just um, felt self-evident actually needed to be stated, perhaps. I think I had gone, oh, why didn't I actually talk about that before? Um, it was just kind of a given mm. that these were the people that I, were photogra- that I was photographing. And so I think this spread gave me an opportunity to kind of reconsider, you know, who, who are these people? And then predominantly they were queer. And I think that was something to celebrate and to talk and investigate more into, you know, are queer people... You know, and and our queer lives, how do they intersect with um, activism of all kinds, but particularly anti-nuclear activism, or in this car, in this class, in this case? Mm. And yeah. yeah, it is a really interesting thing to explore. Um, and in the article, um, you suggest, um, from my reading, you suggest that queers can relate to those who've had their voices systematically silenced for example um, indigenous communities who've have the lived effects of nuclear weapons testing in Australia and have never had their stories recognized Um, what I wonder is is this a simplifying of different experiences and oppressions or do you think it's a really meaningful starting point for solidarity or is there a somewhere in between well I think obviously it is complex and there's probably a multiple or a multitude of ways of which this is is taken and i think the idea of intersectionality is a kind of well-meaning one in which that all of our struggles are bound up together and that's not to lump them all in the same kind of grouping and say that therefore i experience you know discrimination and so i'm with you mm. it's kind of it's kind of more an opportunity, as you say, to, to link struggles and to say, well, actually, they are bound up together because it's capitalism, it's imperialism, it's colonialism, it's patriarchy, and these things are the dominating forces which affect um, all of these, you know, different things, which are various forms of discrimination against, you know, race, gender, sexuality, class, etc., but, you know, it's obviously way more complex. And as Hillary talks about is that, you know, the kind of stuff around, it's a privilege, obviously, to talk about this. Well, I'm a privileged person and, you know, I have the, the privilege to talk about it from this kind of more theoretical or, you know, position in which I'm not actually living um, a struggle, you know, mm. on a day-to-day basis as this, in the same way as, you know, Aboriginal people who are fighting against mining companies or fighting against the government in some way or, yeah, you know, mm. all of those kinds of things. So it's easy for me to talk about it in this sense and so I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not unaware of my yeah. position here and I think that's what we're kind of all talking about. Mm. Mm. Um, yeah, so rather than a, like equating of experiences, it's, um, there are really interesting, I guess, um, kinds of identifications or like, um, 
it's hard to express, isn't it, when you're trying to um, work out where that, yeah, where those common points of solidarity or even just um, relating to someone's experience and truly listening or hearing what that is and um, something connecting in your own life where you want to take action and support or walk beside somebody. Yeah, I think, um, well, I don't know, I think in terms of queer linking linkages is is you know what is by definition when you queer queerify something and this is to kind of um disrupt norms and i Mm. think and i think that that kind of lens is required in all forms of activism and i guess you know to fight against such a large machine as a nuclear machine that we need this these kinds of visions that are rich and diverse and have imagination and, you know, they kind of, they sit outside and around various normative values and, you know, they disrupt the norms. And I think um, that's where this kind of queer linkages with, you know, other struggles can can go, here we are, you know, here we are and this is our kind of way of, approaching or envisaging, you know, kind of ways in which to walk forward. And I think, you know, obviously there's... The idea is actually that we walk alongside, you know. No one... No one gets to lead the other, you mm. know. it's It has to be alongside. And obviously mm. at times to be t- taking steps back, of course, where, where that's needed, where various voices are not required, do not help, you know, mm. to sit back and listen and to hear and to, and to pay attention. And in particular, it was also... I think a strong point of the article was about um, that the nuclear industry and complex is can be read as heteronormative and patriarchal um, in all of its stages and that it's speculated um, that queer resistance to this is... Um, makes sense in a way because it's uh, actually representing an alternative. Um, yeah, it's it's sort of like two very different different beasts and so then... Well, exactly. It's hmm. disrupting it again. It's disrupting this normative, you know, um, patriarchal power machine, which is that it creates this kind of, um, you know, non-binary kind of disruption into something that has so much power and and things, you know, don't sit in this box or that box. And I think that the kind of argument is that, of course, it makes so much sense to be able to, for queers to be, be, you know, protesting this this industry and this machine because it it needs deconstructing, Mm. you know. It needs (laughs) destructing. It's this kind of, you know, how can we view view something from with a different lens in order to dismantle the things that hold it up and keep it strong and powerful. And you, I'm wondering if you can think of any specific protests or occasions when you have felt like um, you've been involved in an act of protest that has destabilised the 
I'm going to say it again, patriarchal and heteronormative um, narrative of the nuclear industry or when you've really felt this is, we are something different and it's really in opposition to what we're protesting against in a um, real-life situation? Well, I think, um, you know, the Lizard's Revenge protest in, that I went to in 2012, and obviously there were earlier ones, um, at, which were not called Lizard's Revenge, but were mm. kind of rock-stop campaigns, and then there's been later ones since then. But I think that there was this kind of uh, performative, celebratory um, queering up of, of resistance, which was about kind of who we are, all are together and, you know, we have to create this kind of um, generative space of, of joy and celebration amongst this kind of, uh, this power machine and this kind of um, oppressive um, system that kind of keeps causing more and more harm to to people and to place, to country, to landscape and communities mm. um, and I think that the Lizard's Revenge protest that, that I went to had this kind of absolute magnificence in, in its performative, um, you know, protest, it, that it was unafraid of the kind of powers that were there. There were, you know, obviously the police force was kind of... Un it was so disproportionate, you know. We had over 300, I think, police. Um, officers there and we had helicopters and and all of that kind of thing for for a camp of maybe 500 people um, I think it was kind of amazing to see how kind of unafraid and and also you know just this is who we are and this is where we are and and we're here you know alongside Aboriginal elders and Aboriginal communities to to do this and to be here and and where, you know, I think this is this kind of ways in which it can shine. And Yeah, I totally agree. Um, I think there's nothing quite so striking as a community, you know, a temporary formed community um, right next to a uranium mine, which is really highly regulated and ordered and controlled. And then you have a creative, colourful, costume sort of um, festival, which is just, yeah, the, the contrast there is kind of, I think even for those who are working at the mine or the police or the media, it's also, it's just a really visual and immediate um, clash of worlds in a way or a sort of, you know, showing two alternatives alongside each other. Um, yeah, yeah, so I think it's really interesting. Sorry, it was just mm. really interesting because obviously it's in it's in you know the South Australian outback uh, outside the Olymp you know the gates of Olympic Dam at Roxby Downs, and so by definition you're invisible. You know, mm. the the only visibility comes through media and and the kind of imagery that gets you know taken from those from those events and and fed back to you know various forms of publication and outlet and, and memory making and history and um, you know this kind of idea of visibility in a place that's um, invisible you know out of sight out of mind I think was mm. also a big part of those kinds of protests mm. which, which you know are the ones that are located kind of in in the outback in the desert in Australia which kind of make visible places like that mm.
You're tuned to The Radioactive Show with Crunch and have just been hearing an interview with Jesse Boylan, or JB, speaking about queer resistance and alternatives to the nuclear industry. JB is the author of a recent photo essay, This Is Not Nowhere, which was published in the magazine Lottl and can be found online. That's L-O-T-L. Jem Ronald was one of the activists photographed and interviewed in this article. You'll hear from her now. Thanks for joining me for a chat, Jem. Um, can you start out by introducing yourself to listeners? Some may remember sure. you as a former Rad Show producer. That's right. Yes, I was a Rad Show producer and uh, anti-nuclear activist and working as the Australian director of ICANN, which is the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. Great. Now... Um, I'm really glad that you've joined us for a chat because we are having a look at queers against nukes in this episode and it was partly inspired by um, an article that has recently been published by Jesse Boylan um, which was just exploring the link or if there is one between queer people um, and resistance against the nuclear industry. I'm going to read a quote from you in that article and um, see if you can expand on that a bit for us or explain what you mean. So this is, you have said, some say the Nuclear Weapons Ban Treaty is queering up nuclear disarmament because it undermines dominant patriarchal discourse around nukes, prioritises or at least amplifies marginalised voices, countries and people impacted by nuclear testing and is radically changing security frameworks worldwide, putting nuclear-armed states and their allies on the defensive. Great Mm. quote. Thank you. (laughs) Perhaps it's quite a long one. It's um, early on you say about queering up nuclear disarmament. Mm. What do you mean by that? Yeah, well, I guess there is a fairly dominant story that we're told by the nuclear weapon states about nuclear weapons and why they are important weapons to them and why they are uh, relevant in our world, why they keep us safe and why they are the ultimate instruments of of power. So Mm. this is the dominant narrative that uh, the nuclear armed states and many of their allies have been maintaining for decades now. Um, and Australia is complicit in that kind of language. You know, our government says that nuclear weapons are the, or the nuclear weapons of the United States are uh, essential for the security of Australia. So directly saying that you know, these weapons of mass destruction are important and relevant and, and, um, and keep us safe. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas the Nuclear Weapon Ban Treaty... Um, undermines that discourse completely and the process that led to the treaty uh, really threw that discourse on its head. Mm. Um, so this, this process was, is, has come to be known as the Humanitarian Initiative, uh, which was a process of conferences uh, between governments and civil society that, that focused global attention on the humanitarian impacts of the weapons, so mm. instead of instead of just looking at the weapon as um, 
a weapon that is in your security policy, instead looking at what are these weapons, what do they do, uh, what are the real-world implications of them. So it became really clear that uh, these weapons are actually instruments of, of genocide. Um, they they are, do not make us safe, and they're part of um, they're part of a system that upholds violent masculinities as a legitimate form of state power and as a method to to gain security. Um, so the ban treaty, which came out of these meetings, um, instead of uh, having a few countries saying these weapons make us safe, you had the rest of the world saying, no, these weapons threaten all of us and we're in the majority and we actually have a collective power that can override you. Um, so they negotiated this treaty and this treaty now um, says that you know these weapons are not a tool of security. Uh, they're instruments of mass murder and... Um, and people are still suffering from the t- from them today. Uh, mm-hmm. Not only the Hibakusha in Japan, but but people around the world who've suffered from nuclear testing, and this is um, largely Indigenous people as well, including from Australia and the Pacific. So, um, so mm. when you're um, just to, because there's a lot there in what you're saying, just to um, spin out some of it. When you're saying uh, about the differences in the process of how it's regularly perceived um, the, you know, type of discourse about nuclear weapons and very state-based and sort of upper levels, um, not a very democratic type process. Is that what you're contrasting with the humanitarian process, which is like centred people and the human effects? Mm. Um, yeah, it's it's countries that use this language and also um, the nuclear weapons industry and the kind of academic uh, the academic field of foreign policy, all of these conservative think tanks that uh, write papers and back up uh, these arguments as well. And, and they often um, imply that where you're kind of rash, irrational and emotional to talk about the humanitarian impacts of, of nuclear weapons and that um, it's really naive and idealistic to actually pursue a world free of nuclear weapons. Mm. Um, And many of these voices said, oh, you'll never be able to get a a nuclear weapon ban treaty. Um, Mm. But we've proved them wrong, that actually it is realistic and and rational to pursue a world free of nuclear weapons. We've banned nuclear weapons. Um, And it's also also completely irrational to think that we can keep 14,000, 15,000 nuclear weapons in our world without any of them ever being used, whether that's by accident or on purpose. Mm. And any use of nuclear weapons would be catastrophic. Yeah, so that is really interesting um, that they're deeming, the dominant deeming of what is irrational tends to be those kinds of insults or marginalising that, you know, traditionally happen towards... Um, women or female gendered people, but also extends to like queer communities or gender non-conforming. The idea that it's not um, it's not too much of a long bow to compare that type of othering, I guess. Do you find that even in the language, like directly the language that is used by the real politic or the um, state-based language, is that gendered? Or also, you know, could you say that there's a sort of heteronormative language within that or is that going too far? 
Oh, that would be really interesting to read over some of these documents um, mm. to consider that. I, I think there is definitely a gendered language that is used around nuclear weapons um, and it is often implied that um, we're living in fairyland to be to be pursuing mm. nuclear disarmament um, and that it's this sort of emotionally appealing idea but it's not realistic it's this contrast of of um, of sort of ideas and theories and hopes and dreams compared with what is real um, which is also bizarre because in a sense um, nuclear deterrence is is this theory and it's an idea that is promoted and used to maintain the industry around nuclear weapons. So, I mean, that is this kind of fairyland, if you think that uh, these weapons uh, will not be used when there are so many still in the world. Um, and I've just been reminded of a meeting that I once had with an Australian politician who said, um, we live in the land of the real and he was saying that in a way to defend Australia not supporting the nuclear weapon ban treaty mm. and saying we have to have these weapons to protect us. And, and that was just, I think, demonstrated how deeply entrenched um, this idea is of nuclear weapons being inevitable and, and permanent. Mm. Um, but, you know, to counter that, we are really, um, we're really thrilled to have this new treaty um, that. Um, is actually currently undermining the nuclear arms states. Um, and one, one more thing I want to say on that is that the ban treaty was came about because of largely countries in the global south who banded together um, and in many cases uh, worked to make illegal the weapons of their former colonisers. So mm. countries in Latin America, Africa and the Asia-Pacific these are all of the countries that um, said, no, it's not only the nuclear weapon states that have a voice in this, this is up to us as well because the effects of nuclear weapons don't cross borders. Um, they affect everybody. Um, so we, our voices are relevant in this, in this debate. And while we can't disarm weapons that we don't have, what we can do is make them illegal and that will increase pressure on the nuclear armed states to, to disarm. Um, and it's all of these same countries that will be the ones to... Um, to make the treaty enter into force to bring about the, um, the numbers for um, signing and ratification to make it become international law. Um, so they are, these countries have all been crucial um, to the process and they have actually um, led, led the process in many ways. As Moving um, back to the power shift of queers taking on the nuclear industry, um, I know ICANN has a cleverly named, is it a subgroup or a, um, a chapter called ICWAN. Could you tell us a bit about how that came about and what, what is ICWAN? Yeah, so ICWAN is the International Queers Against Nukes. And this is a very loose, amorphous body of people uh, we pretty much made a banner and then took it to New York when the ban treaty negotiations were happening and we launched ICWAN by marching in the New York City Pride March in 2017. And um, this is, was largely a way for the queers within the movement, uh, which is an you know, international movement, to, to band together and to um, 
to explore the nuclear weapons debate through um, creativity and through humour and just to give us another platform to make different kinds of arguments and, and to also explore um, the different different oppressions that nuclear weapons are bound up in. So talking mm. about those gendered impacts and, and what we were talking about um, before about how, um, how race intersects with um, who has the power to talk around nuclear weapons. Excellent. And how was that received when you... Yeah, it was really fantastic. We um, gained a lot of supporters very quickly and lots of people who want to be part of ICLAN. Um, so we extend the invitation to any uh, self-identifying queers around the world to be part of ICLAN and you can use it to uh, march in parades or to have actions um, and to basically um, be as creative and outrageous as you want Um in, in taking on the nuclear industry in all of its ways, shapes and forms all around the world. Well, what an invitation. Thanks, Jem. That was Jem Rommeld, Australian Director of ICANN, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. Please look up the valuable work of ICANN and their campaign to get Australia to sign onto the Nuclear Ban Treaty. And if it interests you, check out ICANN as well. Earlier in the show, we heard from artist Jesse Boylan, author of the photo essay, This Is Not Nowhere, that was the inspiration for today's show. Check out Jesse's website, jessieboylan.com. And music on today's show has been by Eddie Donald. The Radioactive Show is produced on Wurundjeri Country in Fitzroy, Melbourne, and heard nationally on the Community Radio Network. You can podcast our shows at 3cr.org.au. I'm Crunch, thanks for listening, and here's to a nuclear-free future.